Thanks for listening to the PocketPod series. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe so you get all the new episodes as they drop. If there's a certain topic that you'd like us to cover, let us know in the comments section. Hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to another episode of the PocketPod series. For those of you who haven't heard yet, the Pocket Pod series is all about pocket-sized podcasts that my little sister Rachel and I make that fit seamlessly into your busy lives. And today is another special episode. We have a guest with us today, one of my good friends from medical school, who's actually one of my original friends from medical school. And I've been thinking about the first time that we actually met leading up to this podcast. Um, I remember there is this APB uh, sitting area outside of our med school. And I think I was sitting all by myself like the first week of med school and Jen Bracken was one of the first ones to come up to me and sit down with me. And we've been friends ever since. And she ended up living right down the street from me and my friends who all lived together all throughout med school. And her and her husband, John, would come over. Uh, We'd watch Game of Thrones, have some good times on the weekdays, study together. And now we're lifelong friends forever. And I dragged (laughs) her onto my podcast to talk about women's health today. So thank you, Jen, for coming on to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been actually thinking about that um, scenario at ABP as well, leading up to this, thinking about how we met uh, having some lunch. So were my facts were my facts straight? I actually remember you coming up to me, so I think it's really sweet that we remember each other coming up to each other. That's hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cute. Oh, well, welcome, Jen. I remember, I don't know when I came down to Pennsylvania, but we all did something together. And we was walking with Kenny and I whispered to him, your friend Jen is so cool. Where does she buy her pants? Because I thought you had the best style. And it was amazing. Well, I'm so flattered. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we're excited to have you today. We're going to talk a little bit about women's health and reproductive health legislation. So I just want to bring up some background just to start. Uh, So we'll go back in the years, back to 2011. Uh, Dr. George Tiller, who was an abortion provider, was assassinated. And then this had led to uh, this kind of like political movement of defunding Planned Parenthood. uh, And this started also in Wisconsin. And then after that, uh, about 36 states had followed and created new laws that restricted safe and legal abortions. And these are called trap laws. Um, And these laws were, they were kind of silly, like they uh, had, they made sure that these medical centers had like a certain width to their hallways. And it was like very, um, they were just very weird laws that they had to follow. They also had to be like a certain distance away from school systems. And then we'll jump a little bit more ahead to 2016, when Trump was elected, and when he promised to nominate judges who would automatically overturn Roe v. Wade. And then uh, one of the first things that he did as president was reinstate and expand the global gag rule. And then more restrictions were placed. Uh, some Planned Parenthoods were forced to close. And then in 2019, Trump, the Trump and Pence administration enacted the Title X gag rule, which made it very hard for low-income patients to have access to reproductive health. Um, and then we'll jump a little bit more ahead to 2022 when Roe versus Wade was overturned. And then this is kind of when um, healthcare was taken away from a general population. So we'll start out the question with what, when you were going through med school, how did these events shape your views of sexual and reproductive health? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I kind of went into medical school thinking that I wanted to pursue OBGYN as a career. Um, but honestly, like pre-med school, even though I had, you know, I would have considered myself to have always been pro-choice and to have always felt like I was an advocate for that option, that wasn't a huge factor in kind of what had driven me to pursue a career in women's health. I think that things really kind of culminated my fourth year of medical school. Um, I had gotten involved with some groups on campus and I went to a conference for um, med students for choice. And I will never forget. It was actually in Philadelphia, which is kind of ironic. That's where I live now and where I practice medicine now. Um, But I remember the first day of the conference, we were all sitting in this ballroom and they were like, the moderator of the conference was like, just in case you guys haven't done this yet, please all get on your cell phones and turn off your location services because we do not want anyone to know where we're having this conference and who is here because it is a very real, you know, you mentioned the assassination of George Tiller. Like it's a very real that providers who provide these services and who are vocal about supporting this are at risk of violent acts. And that really kind of spurred me to be like, this is crazy that this is like how our healthcare is for women in this country. Um, and that kind of spurred me to, you know, I had already decided at that point that I was going into OBGYN, but I, that kind of made me be like, this is an important part of my career and my job is protecting my patients that are women and making sure that they have access to these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's scary to do that because I have a family, I have loved ones, and that's always kind of the balance for people who provide these services is, balancing their their goals for providing for their patients, but keeping themselves safe. Have you had moments since then where you've also felt kind of terrified being in the position that you're at and having to deal with such a charged field of medicine? Nothing quite as real as that. I mean, I feel fortunate to practice in a place that's fairly progressive. Like Philadelphia is a large urban area. It's obviously skews blue and votes very blue for all elections. There's multiple abortion centers in the city. Um, We rotate at a center in um, downtown in Chinatown. And when we go there, there's always a few protesters outside of the building, but it's nothing like the videos you see online where there's hundreds of people that you have to walk through and no one's vocalizing to me that I'm a murderer or anything like that. So in those, like, I've never felt as nervous I think is that moment where honestly that moderator was like it's very serious you need to turn off your location services like in that moment I was like oh my gosh this is really real um luckily where I practice now I don't necessarily feel quite that way um but I know that that's very real for providers across the nation especially with a lot of the bans that have been put put in place the last couple of years yeah, speaking of that sort of relevancy in the last couple of years, um, you're at the tail end of your residency. So you've been doing this for four years now. And the last four years, we obviously know there's been a lot of change that's happened pretty much since the Supreme Court, like Rachel was mentioning, has had judges get put into place who are in favor of banning abortions. Um, so a lot has changed in this country. How have you seen your job um, as a physician change because of these laws? Yeah, so... I feel lucky that at the moment I'm practicing in a state where abortion is still not necessarily under threat. Pennsylvania is what we call a purple state, but our governor has been blue for the last number of years, which has protected us and allowed us to still provide abortion services. You know, the overturn of Roe with the Dobbs decision 
turned things back to the state. And luckily for now, Pennsylvania is still um, allowing abortion up to 24 weeks. So that's good for our patients who need those things. 24 weeks is also an important time because patients have had all of their genetic screening pretty much already performed. They've been able to have time for diagnostic testing as well as anatomy scans. All of these things play a part in whether or not someone wants to pursue termination of a pregnancy because of it's some sort of lethal anomaly or an anomaly that is going to cause them to have an increased cost and issues with childcare. Um, those all play a role. So luckily Pennsylvania has still, um, we still have those protections that we can offer patients termination up to 24 weeks. Pennsylvania is a weird state and that pretty much the only blue spots are Philly and Pittsburgh. So our house and Senate and within our state are probably going to stay red for the foreseeable future, which means that it will probably never become like codified in our state constitution, at least in the near future. Um, but for now it's safe. That said, honestly, the thing, and Rachel briefly mentioned this, I think that the thing that affected my care the most was probably those gag rules that the Trump administration put in place. Um, they put those gag rules on any clinic that accepts Title X funding. And so Title X funding is um, federal funding for affordable contraception and the kind of like vague term of reproductive health for women. Um, and during the Trump administration, they put a gag rule that any clinics that accept Title X funding could not provide even counseling or referrals for abortion care. Hmm. Um, and this is a huge part of our practice, you know, and our clinic at Temple, you know, I practice for people listening who don't know me, I practice at Temple, which is in North Philadelphia. It's a very underserved area. 95% of my patients are Medicaid patients. And um, our GYN clinic that we run as residents is Title X funded. And so when this gag rule was placed, you know, we have patients coming for confirmation of pregnancy visits. And part of my like general counseling is always like, okay, yes, you're pregnant. How are you feeling about this? What are your plans? Is this a desired pregnancy? Was this a planned pregnancy? All of that's really critical to helping our patients navigate this new thing that's really crazy and scary. And what do they want to do? And like, we were in a position where we were not even allowed to like mumble the words that abortion was a possibility. Wow. We weren't allowed to counsel. We were not allowed to offer referrals. Um, and, you know, we, I guess we could have done it, but at the risk that we could have been audited. And if that right. was found out, we would, our funding would be taken away. And obviously our clinic does a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the thing that affected us most. Luckily it got lifted when Biden was elected and we've been able to resume counseling as normal and refer patients where they need to go. But that was a tough, that was a tough period where we had to really buckle down on what we were allowed to tell patients. And it's scary. You're afraid you're going to say the wrong thing, but you know that your patient needs this. So that's really hard to navigate. Yeah. Cause it's kind of like you're biting your tongue and sitting on your hands for something that was like totally available a couple of years ago. And then all of a sudden it's not, and then you, all of a sudden it's available again. Like it's a very interesting sort of dynamic to have this back and forth yeah. And I think patients kind of expect it. Like, I don't want to say expect it, but for the patients who did have an undesired pregnancy, like, like I think most people expect that their gynecologist can tell them where to go to terminate mm -hmm. their pregnancy. And the fact that I was kind of skirting the issue and not really able to talk, talk to my patients about that, I feel like really was a disservice to them. And, you know, at, at worst could have harmed a patient 
physician relationship because they don't trust me and they're afraid that I'm not, you know, on board with what their choices are. And that's never the kind of provider that I would want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually went out recently with one of the OB fellows who's here at Women and Infants, who's from Penn State, Steve Rosaya. And we were talking about kind of his next job. He's going down to Virginia. Um, but we were talking about how he wanted to go somewhere warmer. And he was like, well, I couldn't go that far south because then I wouldn't be able to practice some of my maternal fetal medicine that I trained for. Did you feel any sort of restriction when you were looking for jobs and felt like if I practice in a certain area, I would be limited in my capabilities. So I'm going to keep that off the table and then follow that up with, doesn't that create like almost healthcare deserts for patients because physicians aren't going to go to certain parts of the country because they know their hands are going to be tied? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point and a great question. Um, it definitely was on the forefront of my mind when I was looking for jobs. Um, I had pretty much, I mean, I knew that I was going to be practicing in Pennsylvania where at least the right now rights to abortion are protected. I did, you know, when we, when we were in the midst of our governor election this time last year and through the summer, you know, the Republican nominee for governor for Pennsylvania made very sweeping claims that he would place a total ban on abortion. And, you know, I had said like, if that happens, I am looking for a job out of state. Like I'm not staying here. So you know, I think had that come to fruition, I'm a Pennsylvania lifer. I've been here forever. I have a family. My family is near here. It would have been hard to leave, but it's a really important piece to me of how I'm going to practice medicine. Um, your point about um, provider deserts and, and deserts for patients where they can't get care is really important. And there was actually a really big study done last year about actually OBGYN trainees and how trainees. And I know Steve, I remember him from Penn State and I know, yeah. And, you know, this is a big thing for MFM too, because they, they do all the genetic testing and they do all Mm -hmm. the scanning. And there are a lot of places where MFM fellows and even OBGYN residents feel like they're not going to get adequate training. And there have been a lot of studies showing that, you know, all of these programs that are in, you know, Texas, like they're not going to get trained on these procedures because they can't do them anymore. Mm-hmm. And surgical fields require numbers for things and you have to use your hands and learn how to do these procedures in order to be good at them. And some of these procedures are things that we do, you know, the word abortion is colloquially used to mean like elective termination of a pregnancy, but it's a procedure we do for people who would have never wanted to terminate their pregnancy either, whether it's because of a fetal anomaly or because their water broke too early or because, you know, they their baby passed away before they transitioned to third trimester or whatever. And we do surgical procedures to end those pregnancies. And without the capability to practice those procedures frequently, you're not good at them. And they mm-hmm. have complications that you need to be able to address. And there is going to be a huge um gap in training i think for a lot of programs in these states where they're not allowed to do these procedures and that will trickle down to the patients yeah so it sounds like you're you're doing a lot already uh but what are other ways you see yourself as a patient advocate in and outside of the hospital yeah i mean on if i'm being totally honest like obgyn is a very rigorous um residency and like doing things outside of the hospital is kind of 
not something that I have a lot of time for anymore. But I mean, I think that our patient population in Philly, the advocacy is honestly kind of at the micro level. Like our patients have so many barriers to care. They don't have transportation. They don't have, you know, they either don't have jobs or they don't have the money to help them get what they need, or their jobs are positions where time off is not tolerated or compensated one or the other. So, you know, they're having to take time off for um, procedures or visits and they're not paid for that. Um, So I think a lot of my patient advocacy comes from providing care to those patients and kind of helping them navigate through those situations to make sure that they can get the care that they need. Um, You know, in a previous life, when I had more time, I was going to marches and I, you know, was writing letters and going to, I was really involved with Pennsylvania Medical Society in med school. And I would go to the voting delegate um, conferences, you know, as much as I hate to admit it, residency has a little bit burned me out to the point that I haven't gotten to those um, events. But I think practicing in North Philly, like patient advocacy is kind of our day in and day out, honestly. Mm -hmm. You're like boots on the ground, basically. (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that to, you know, pat ourselves on the back, but our patients have a ton of barriers. And I mean, that's what we're navigating all the time. Totally. Yeah. Very well-respected field. And sort of to follow that up, like, like you said, medical students have a lot of time and even like, I'm sure some people even know in college that they want to go into like women's health or like become an OBGYN in the future what sort of words of wisdom or words of inspiration would you give to anybody who sees themselves wanting to be in your shoes five, 10 years from now? Like, how do you want to see the shape of your field from the youth who are coming up to your place? Um, I think that OBGYN is the field that there is a lot of both physical and mental burnout. And I'm not saying that to deter people from entering the field. It's super important that people continue to pursue this field. Um, But it is really hard to, it's a field where there's a lot of ideas from lay people that are not based in our evidence. And it's a field that a lot of people feel like they're beliefs and thoughts belong in for whatever reason. And I don't know how it's gotten there politically in our country, but that's the case. Even aside from abortion, people have feelings about birth control. People have feelings about whether or not you should have an epidural in labor. People have feelings about whether you should have a midwife or a physician take care of you. You know, there's a, if, if you go on the internet into the mommy sphere and the pregnancy sphere, there's a lot of feelings and a lot of things that people talk about of what's right and wrong for you and your body and your baby and all mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And it's really tough to navigate. And it's, it's something that is, can like weigh on you. Cause you're like, I know better. These people are crazy, but your patients come in citing these things and you have to navigate it and it can be really hard and it can be really hard to get patients on your side sometimes as a practitioner of Western medicine. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I think that the bottom line is like, this is something that you should absolutely be passionate about um, because it, it's a little bit of an uphill battle, at least right now. And I hope that as people pursue this field and we 
all get together and we take our stances and we advocate for our patients that it will become easier and easier for our patients to just like feel comfortable in wanting what's right for them because a lot of it convolutes what they want because of all the voices from everywhere about everything. Um, but you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough field, but it's incredibly rewarding. We get to be with patients at some of the best times in their life and some of the most vulnerable. And that's something I will never take for granted. I mean, I've delivered hundreds of babies and I still get super amped every time. Like my favorite part of a C-section is like lifting the baby, like Simba style to show the mom to be like, here's your kid. This is the best yeah. day of your life. Like, so, I mean, keeping passion about it is, is definitely key. You get to go to a birthday party like every day. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Sometimes I sing happy birthday if I'm in a really good mood. (laughs) That's a little nerdy. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Well, thanks, Jen. That was, those are really good answers to our questions. Um, I really appreciate your time. And usually the way we wrap this up is Rachel and I kind of talk about what we took away from the episode. So Rachel, you want to start us off and tell us what you took away? Yeah, uh, I think the part that struck me the most is when Jen was talking about how there are some times where she kind of had to hold back information from parents or from patients, uh, which is like, it's really hard to think. You just really want to care for your patients and you have solutions for their problems, but you almost have to gatekeep them um, because you might lose your license if you say something. So uh, I think that's really difficult difficult to kind of deal with and I admire you for going through everything that you've gone through and still caring for your patients uh, the best way possible that's actually what I was going to say but I I had a second one in mind too um and it's very it's very cool to see I mean I know I've known Jen now for probably a decade and it's cool to see like how you've been able to like evolve in sort of like your surrounding and what your role is based on your surrounding and how you've gone from someone who was writing letters and doing marches and protesting to being the person who's standing in front of a patient and advocating for that person when you're right in front of them. And I can tell you're still very passionate about this field. I hope you continue to keep this passion for years and years to come. And I think your patients are very lucky to have you and are gonna be benefited by your care. So keep up the good work. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was awesome. And I really appreciate your questions. They had me thinking very critically as I was kind of thinking about what I would talk about tonight. So I appreciate you both. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, of course. I think you left listeners with some really good knowledge. And I know this topic is like very charged and very polarizing, um, but really when it comes down to it, there's like human lives at risk here. And you guys, you physicians, OBGYNs are really the ones who are helping protect these patients and making sure they get safe and equitable care as they go forward. So thank you for what you did. Thanks. Appreciate that. All right, Jen. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Rach. Thanks. Bye. Bye.